in a lot of these engineering environments. It's about shipping the thing. It's about getting it out the door, getting minimum viable. And I think as we get into these more complex applications, um, and especially applications at scale, minimum viable just isn't a sufficient bar to clear. So just getting people to understand, hey, we want to understand. We we need to get to a place in which we have confidence, um, not just a minimum viable product, but you know, minimum viable confidence that this is going to uh, have a net positive outcome. And we've thought deeply about the you know, known knowns and known unknowns that could cause negative outcomes here. Uh, and we have a plan in place to address those. Welcome to Founder Chats by Bear Metrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, Brian talked with Aran Khanna, the founder and CEO of Archera. Archera uses machine learning to help organizations find cloud solutions that fit their companies. From writing open source code for the Apache MXNet project to exposing privacy concerns about Facebook's Messenger apps, which got him fired from his internship there, Arun has built innovative technology while questioning how we should be using it. This was a really interesting episode, and we hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. Yeah, of course. Um, so as we usually start, can you tell us where did you start your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, so uh, there's a long version and a short version, and I think I'll, I'll go with the medium version here. So okay. sounds um, good. currently calling in from Seattle, which is actually where I was born and raised. I'm a Seattleite through and through. And, uh, you know, I really started my, my journey here um, working at startups around the area when I was in high school. So I actually started, uh, funnily enough, given what I'm doing now, I started uh, on what I would consider the other side of the world, which is kind of the slow moving world of synthetic biology in the early 2010s. Uh, so I was working at a small startup uh, that was trying to actually genetically engineer uh, algae, cyanobacteria, bacteria to create uh, biofuels. And what was interesting to me about that was you know, I thought it was so cool that we could actually change, you know, the very essence of life uh, to become essentially a machine that does what we want. I was really encapsulated by that idea early on in high school and, and worked uh, towards uh, trying to see what that career path looked like. And what I found was that, you know, just making small iterations, things that you would consider like a one line of code change in the engineering and computer science world would take weeks and weeks and weeks to, to gestate and multiply and then finally come up with a solution. And right. in that time working at that startup, I actually connected with someone who worked on the computational bio side of the house. And I was talking to him about his work. And what was so striking is the fact that the experiments that were taking me two weeks would take him two seconds to get an answer. And uh, I started to get really enthralled by this idea of you know, how you could build and scale things and learn and iterate so much faster in the world of bits versus the world of atoms and biology. And mm. so as I went into school, uh, I really started to think more about you know, what were the, the platforms, the technologies, the interesting things to learn about. And at college, I, I studied computer science uh, and mathematics and ended up getting really into privacy research. Uh, and so my sort of solo entrepreneurial journey actually started with creating a bunch of public open source applications uh, that ran on top of sites like Facebook and Venmo, uh, a number of other platforms to actually help users of those platforms uh, go in and understand what was the data that those uh, sites were leaking about them. What was the mm. unintended privacy consequences of leaving things like, uh, you know, the default sharing on in Venmo or the default location sharing in 2015 on in Messenger. And actually through a lot of that work um, and, you know, seeing tens or hundreds of thousands of people download my applications, uh, I, I immediately got hooked to, you know, maybe in the limit, we'd call it entrepreneurship, but really at that point, it was just building things and putting them out there for people to experience, play with, um, you learn from and get feedback on. Uh, and really, as I kind of started that journey, and there's some interesting things that came out of that, such as a TED talk that I did on digital privacy, and even me getting fired from Facebook uh, for exposing some of their uh, privacy issues back in 2015 with respect to Messenger. Um, mm. You know, I really started to get addicted to the impact that that could have, just building things, putting it out there, and really being able to affect change in a short period of time across a broad swath of people. Um, so 
that was sort of my mid stage of the journey. From there, I actually went and started work on machine learning because what I saw was with all of these platforms essentially um, manipulating people into giving up so much of their data, there was this massive risk, but also opportunity in terms of how to leverage that data at scale. Uh, so I got really into deep learning research with a professor from Carnegie Mellon. Um, and somewhere along the way there, I did an internship uh, early on in, in Azure here in Seattle uh, at Microsoft. Uh, and so had this marrying of computing infrastructure and deep learning that I was working on uh, through this open source framework called MXNet. Uh, again, sort of entrepreneurial. I think this uh, project kind of based space where you're doing a lot of open source work uh, is, especially nowadays with things like crypto, uh, a very valid entrepreneurial uh, sort of path forward. But we ended up building a little bit of a you know five, six person research startup around that open source deep learning project. And then we got acquired by AWS uh, to become their SageMaker team. So ended up working at Amazon through that for um, you know two, two and a half years. And actually through that process, I ended up seeing a lot of the stuff uh, around platform transparency that was uh, of a concern to me in the consumer space, particularly with respect to privacy, uh, sort of happening in the enterprise space, but more with respect to cost transparency um, and visibility when it comes to things like, you know, living in these walled gardens uh, of the cloud service providers, be they Azure, where I was earlier in my career, or AWS, where I ended up later after that startup. And that's what really, you know, catalyzed me to start thinking about how do I think about this problem differently for customers? And how do I solve this transparency problem around cost and predictability that exists in the enterprise space in a similar way that the projects I worked on in the consumer space uh, were able to kind of solve and affect change around these uh, privacy problems. And that's really where my current business, Archera, came from, which we founded uh, in 2019. And we've been running for, oh, wow, almost three years now, uh, just raising our Series A actually uh, at the end of last year. That's awesome. So did you, the, the kind of focus on, around building these projects and sort of um, kind of like a, to, to steal like business parlance, so you kind of had like a really fast, like go to market on these ideas. Like as soon, it seems like as soon as you had them, you, you sort of figured out maybe unintentionally a way to get them out into the world as quickly as possible. Did that happen through the process of you studying computer science or did that come from somewhere else? Yeah, so actually, it's it's kind of funny because I think of all the computer science programs in the country, the least practical one was the one at Harvard, which is where I was at. Um, mm. You know, you learn occult functional languages like OCaml and you know low level languages like C, and you didn't learn about things like you know Chrome extensions, which are so critical for the distribution of uh, the applications around privacy that I was putting out for the public. Uh, you didn't learn about things like uh, you know new JavaScript frameworks which were critical for actually building websites and interactive experiences for customers. So a lot of that ended up being, um, you know, obviously foundationally based on some of the concepts that you learned in computer science. But I think it was really kind of a self-teaching and, and self-motivated thing. You know, my, I think, you know, my ADD brain just loves to play with things. Mm -hmm. And when I see a problem and I get obsessed with it, you know, whether it be in a browser window or in a IPython Jupyter notebook, I just love to play with it. And as you play with it more and more, you start to see, or at least I did, the possibilities of how you can actually um, put that into uh, something that looks like a product, something that looks like it can be packaged up and distributed at scale. Uh, and I think that's that's really the process that I went through. It's get excited about something, play with it, you know, build some little prototypes around it, and then you know, get some feedback, obviously, but have confidence in how you can actually then package it into something that could be distributed more broadly. Yeah, that's awesome. What was the what was the first project you said that you did that was sort of of that nature? Yeah, I, you know, I've done a lot of projects. I think the one that was probably the most well known was my uh, project in 2015 around Facebook Messenger and the privacy issues that. Um, were inherent in some of the defaults around location sharing there. So I'm happy to kind of step back and tell that story because I think it's emblematic of some of the work that I did at that period. But generally, 
um, you know, 2015, if you remember using Facebook Messenger then, uh, if you're using it from your mobile phone, every time you sent a message to a group or to a friend, uh, by default, your location, your exact location at the time of that message was actually attached to that message. And mm. what I started to understand as I used this tool just constantly throughout my life in college with my friends was that, uh, you know, while one location dot on a map is not that interesting or exciting because of the frequency with which folks are using this messenger service in groups and in, in chats, even in, you know, large, large groups with folks who are not even friends with them. Um, over time, you could start to actually add up this location data and build a really comprehensive and, you know, many people would say invasive picture of right. someone's daily movements. So I actually created an app instead of, you know, doing this in an IPython notebook or pencil and paper would sit in your browser and actually scrape all of that information in from the Facebook site and display it on a map. Uh, and kind of cheekily, I called it Marauder's Map. If you're familiar with Harry Potter, it's essentially sure. <laughs> the same concept, just like stalking folks around Hogwarts. I was able to stalk all my friends around Harvard uh, using that, um, you know, that data leakage, essentially. And really, the point of this was to educate folks on why they should turn off this default and right. let them see what the data they were exposing and their friends were exposing to them looked like so they could make that informed decision. Um, so really, you know, trying to provide more transparency to that platform in a way that showed customers or users rather than told customers or users. Um, at the same time, actually, I had a summer internship lined up at Facebook and I actually thought this would be something that they'd be really happy about. Uh, right. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they have customers, they have, you know, I thought their customers were their users. And if this is something that educates their customers slash their users and uh, provides a better experience for them and uh, more insight onto how the platform works and how they would want to use it, wouldn't it be a net positive thing? It turns out Facebook doesn't operate like that. And, uh, you know, it's uh, you're with us, you're against us sort of culture. And I think it still is to this day. So, you know, as a 21 year old intern, I got a call from the VP of engineering quite literally the day before my internship was supposed to start saying, hey, you did not act in Facebook's best interests. You know, we're sending your internship. So that was something right. that uh, I think was a bit of a smack in the face at the time. But uh, in the long run, I think became just more motivating fuel for me to go in and build and, and disrupt the status quo, which I think is a fire that burns within pretty much every entrepreneurial person that I've met. Um, and I did a number of other projects in the privacy space and did a few TED Talks about them kind of, you know, motivated by, by that experience. Yeah, that's great. How did you how did you go down the the TED Talk path? Is that something that was offered to you, or you're like, hey, I've like I've done enough at this point that I feel comfortable with sharing that maybe I should should put this together and uh, get it out there into the world? Yeah, I, I think it was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. You know, the opportunity mm -hmm. did present itself, but you know, at that time. Uh, I felt like I had more to talk about than just one project. You know, I had right. done a lot of research after that point uh, and really thought deeply about platform transparency, uh, particularly with respect to these consumer platforms and data leakage and privacy. So uh, I think I, I had a general set of, of themes and a good call to action um, that was worth talking about in a broader setting. Um, so I think, you know, without that confidence, without that conviction, which is built over um, five, six different projects and, and work with a professor who actually worked as the uh, CTO over at the FTC doing all the technology related consumer protection work, uh, mm. I just wouldn't have felt comfortable or like I had the depth to say something. That's cool. Yeah, it's great to have some people along the way. And um, maybe it's fun to look back on, but it sort of, sort of feel like the, the, the experience with Facebook Messenger was kind of like, could easily take that as a negative of like, okay, cool. I thought I did something cool, but it, you know, it cost me my internship. Um, but in retrospect, it does feel like, you know, a lot of people can recognize that as like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's, I, I think most people would agree that probably Facebook is in the wrong there. I think <laughs> a lot of people are on that train now of like, yeah, I don't think Facebook really handled that very well. So it's yeah. kind of cool to have that guidance in your life too, to say like, hey, you know, that was actually something that is, you know, it was a good thing, uh, even though it probably felt pretty crappy at the time. Yeah, a bit of a shock at the time, but I think, you know, in the, in the long run, if anything, I feel like all the, the stuff that's come out over the last two years has just been vindicating uh, to yeah. see that, you know, my thoughts about their culture back in 2015 were spot on. You know, that, that hasn't changed, and that's led to a lot of downstream problems for them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, 
yeah, to your point, I think the the work that you did to sort of expose Facebook's kind of uh, sort of uh, I don't I don't know how to characterize it, but they're not the most careful with customer data. Uh, it's like safe to say. Well, they view um, you know, customers as their their um, you know advertising partners, and they view users as cattle, and I think that's that's sort of the fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you know if they they were to try to make any sort of claim against like hey this is like not been like this or this is not the type of company that we are i think your project very clearly illustrates that no it is <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know not, again this was brought to your attention you know you know way back in the day quote unquote which in the grand scheme of things is not that long ago um but in you know startup years it was quite a long time ago uh and you actually like kind of kick the guy out i mean you probably would have been able to be a great resource to say like well how can we like prevent this from happening because you're the one like you're the one that thought about how to how to use the data uh you know for your own for your own nefarious uh you know reasons so um yeah it's very interesting to um kind of to your point i i imagine there was probably yeah i i envisioned you with you know a a robe and a uh, a glass of brandy just watching the news <laughs> about facebook come out and be like uh yep uh, i told you yeah, well, I just I just wanted to make sure I didn't get sued by Facebook. So <laughs> that was the that was know, that, yeah that was the, that was the, the first line. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Okay. So did the um, kind of TED talk in the air? Did that come out sort of in your timeline, like roughly after you know going through the the Facebook experience and you know before the the next phase of your. Of yeah, your, of your career. I think that that was right about when I was uh, sort of leaving school to work full time at that machine learning startup, uh, kind of working on mm. the deep learning infrastructure stuff that got acquired by AWS. So, you know, right in the middle there, I did that um, talk, and I actually continue now to do talks around uh, privacy and uh, consumer protection with these large digital platforms. You know, that being said, uh, I'm obviously doing uh, far fewer projects and and building a lot less code to to actually kind of affect. Um, insight and change from people just given all the other stuff on my plate right now, but still a a big passion of mine. Cool. And did you said that that deep learning startup, was that to, was that on the billing side that I understand you correctly there of like understanding like where, where costs are coming from or was the deep learning focus in a, in a different direction? It, It was a very different direction. It was really looking at how do we take these very complicated, large networks and actually run them on GPU hardware. So it was a, um, open source is actually the Apache deep learning framework called MXNet that we were working on. And that specific uh, piece of technology, and this was, I think, when PyTorch was still really starting. And, you know, Torch, when everyone everyone was talking about Torch, was still Lua, which is kind of the old version that came out of, I think, Montreal or something like that. Um, And and so it was still very early days in the deep learning ecosystem. You know, TensorFlow was still just getting started. Um, PyTorch wasn't really there. and, And we were one of the competing frameworks. We were the open source Apache framework trying to help folks actually define and run these networks on a whole bunch of different hardware, but really focused on kind of GPU and accelerator hardware. Um, So not really focused on cost as much as capabilities um, and opening up that set of capabilities for developers. Cool. How did you make it? Were you interested in machine learning prior to that? Or was it something that kind of as the opportunity came up, you're like, oh, yeah, this sort of aligns with, you know, what I'm what I'm interested in? Yeah. So I think I was as I got into the data research space, um, particularly looking at, uh, you know, what is the data being leaked to these platforms? What's the data being leaked to the public? I I started to understand and appreciate the importance that machine learning um, will be having in our society in the long term, given that all this data <laughs> is not going back in the bottle. And right. we now have this incredibly powerful tool uh, to essentially build representations that are useful for different tasks off of that data. Um, and I could see that going in a really positive direction and a really negative direction uh, for society. And I felt like that was the next thing, um, just like privacy in the 2010s, that was worth learning about and getting ahead of. Uh, and luckily enough, when I got fired from Facebook, I ended up actually landing um, this startup uh, position uh, in California um, and luckily paying off the rent for the thing that I had uh, leased over the summer for what was supposed to be my Facebook internship. So right. it, it lined up pretty well, but I was definitely looking for something in that space and, and really excited about it. Um, and I'm really glad I got the chance to actually do fundamental research there and understand uh, what was possible, what was not, um, and sort of how things worked mechanistically at a deep level. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I've always been fascinated by machine learning. And I guess maybe I've had some kind of similar thoughts to you of like, I don't know, you just kind of get to the point where when they're, the availability of data is a big blocker and then kind of like the cleanliness of the data that you can get. Uh, and in a world that we're going in where everything like the data, like I imagine it, it's probably unthinkable to people who lived, you know, were in kind of the, the computer field 40 years ago of like the, the, the amount of the, the data sets that a, that a computer could have access to, to do like any sort of modeling on. It's like, it's just crazy now. And to your, to your point, the thing that you observed is like, it's not just like, you know, housing prices, but it's also like people's information and like, you know, location data and all these sorts of things. It, it has always felt to me like machine learning is like an incredible tool to have in your, in your tool belt to be able to answer questions that you might not get there uh, on your own, if you have a, a developer that's like directly writing a solution to a specific problem. Yeah, but you know, I think the concern of mine always is how does the limitations of this system or how it's applied in production, um, how could it possibly cause unintended negative consequences? And I think mm. that there's a number of things that we've already seen from, you know, accuracy of facial detection to, you know, even non-deep learning algorithms like, you know, sentencing guidelines being derived algorithmically that can cause tons <laughs> of problems at scale. Uh, and yeah. I think, wow. yeah, having that, that education and marrying it with, I think what's always been in the back of my mind, which is like, what is the public benefit and what is the public drawback of this when it's deployed at scale? Uh, I think really contextualizes the opportunity as well as the cautions that we should have around rolling out systems like this. Hmm. Well, how do you how do you think about that? How do you balance the the upsides of a piece of technology versus the potential harms they might do? Yeah, well, that's a very broad question. I think it's uh, obviously highly contextual based on the piece of technology. Um, you know, you're going to have a much higher bar for something that has a medical use case, for example, uh, versus something that's like a fun social app. You know, if the algorithm is the TikTok algorithm, I don't really care as much. Whereas if this is an algorithm that, you know, drives a, you know, a heart pump or an insulin pump, I care a lot mm. because there is a, a massive downside. So I think there's dimensions that you have to consider around what is the application, what is the kind of net upside, net downside, and how do we view that from a societal perspective? Obviously, you know, someone being radicalized is bad, someone dying is worse. So I think we, you know, there's there's things that um, I think have different levels of, uh, you need to see a different level of kind of proof of uh, correctness, essentially, uh, mm -hmm. or proof of validity of the solution before you roll it out at scale. And that really is application dependent. So it's it's a hard question to answer in a, in a one size fits all way. But I think uh, the general thing you can say is that if this is something that's going to impact people at scale, you should think about it more than just like, hey, I'm going to run an experiment. Right. Yeah, super, super interesting. And, and it's, it's very, it's actually both sides of the of the of the sentence can kind of be put through, you know, th there's a little bit of fuzziness there of like, you know, even when we're deploying things and we, th it's like, it's almost like we think the potential upside is this. Um, but also it's like, well, we, it can be very difficult to uh, predict what the downsides are going to be. So it would be, it would almost be a different world if we say like, we know for sure. And, and this is probably, I imagine you, you can tell me, I imagine this is the case in most medical applications where they say like, yeah, we've run this through, trials and like we we know there to be this like specific piece of efficacy on the on you know uh, for for patients using this thing um but maybe the downsides aren't you know haven't been considered uh, is that is that a piece where you come in to even just start people thinking about like well maybe consider the downsides before we deploy this thing out into the world yeah, i think that's that's definitely a part of it right you know you just have to get people thinking about um you know, I think in, in a lot of these engineering environments, it's about shipping the thing, it's about getting it out the door, getting minimum viable. And I think as we get into these more complex applications, um, and especially applications at scale, minimum viable just isn't a sufficient bar to clear. So just getting people to understand, hey, we want to understand, we, we need to get to a place in which we have confidence, um, not just a minimum viable product, but you know, minimum viable confidence that this is going to uh, have a net positive outcome and we've thought deeply about the you know known knowns and known unknowns that could cause negative outcomes here uh, mm -hmm. and we have a plan in place to address those 
Yes, if you were if you were talking to a startup and they they wanted to go down that road, like what advice would you have for them to like start to move in that direction of understanding, you know, the known knowns and the the known unknowns of what what downside there might be to the technology that they're creating? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a few a few things. The first thing is just to have the exercise where you go and think about it as a team. And the other thing is just to talk to experts in the field because a lot of startups are running into fields where they have probably less context than the experts. Um, but mm. what's beautiful about the world today is you can, I think, with two or three phone calls, get in touch with almost anyone, um, you know, given the right network and things like that. Uh, and so talking to folks who are expert in the field, who have done a lot of uh, trial and error work and, and trying to learn from them, I think, is another step that folks should just take in terms of um, breaking into a more regulated space or breaking into a space where there is uh, some risk on the downside of deployment of a new technology that you're trying to develop. Yeah, and I imagine that you can, I'm guessing here, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when reaching out to those experts, I imagine if you approach it of saying like, hey, I'm looking to commercialize this piece of technology and I wanna make sure that it's, you know, if you're reaching out to a security researcher, I wanna just kind of double check to make sure that I'm not introducing like a massive like security, you know, or ethical uh, with relation to security issue into the world, would you mind having a double check on this? I imagine that those experts would be um, happier to review it before it's out in the wild than after and they're kind of like cleaning up the mess that you're making as the experts in the field. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely something that uh, yeah I've seen in um, maybe not in security, but definitely like in the medical space with friends of mine who are doing med tech startups, uh, be yeah. really successful. They'll go talk to if they're doing something in the you know oncology space, they'll go talk to an oncologist up here at like Fred Hutch, who's an expert, and um, they're more than happy if you buy him a coffee to just sit down and, and chat and, and talk through you know what are the known knowns, known unknowns from their perspective, and you'll probably learn a few things there. Yeah. And yeah, likely save you a lot of heartache. I can imagine there's a very different, uh, very different, uh, just to take it back, very different direction for Facebook. If they were like, hey, let's just think a little bit about like data privacy and, and you know, that kind of, uh, you know, personal data security. Um, not that they wouldn't still package it up and sell it. But even in the scenario that you had, they were just kind of like, giving it away for free so it's like yeah. they weren't even making money off of that and you know it's just kind of like just uh totally totally un you know they probably could have paid you know someone would have paid good money for that data that they were just <laughs> giving away for free yeah and even then right i think they you know they, they have a, a almost a deeper cultural issue where they're not even trained to ask you know what are the uh externalities essentially of, of putting something like this out there it's move fast and break things um that's that's sort of the culture from an engineering standpoint go test stuff go test stuff at scale uh and if it drives the metrics that matter to us which are the metrics that matter to the advertisers and not really the users of the platform that's a net positive and and just keep plowing away so i think there's there's really some cultural issues there uh, that, are, that are even deeper um, that cause this to happen again and again and again yeah, I guess it's I guess it's also a challenge too from the perspective that commercially Facebook has been you know has done pretty well. So it's like um, it's uh, I guess you you almost have to lean on kind of the the legal issues that they have or kind of the the current day struggles that they have um, because I imagine that someone who's like, I'm thinking of speaking to someone who's just starting a business or is looking to get into this space and we say like yeah well you know Facebook's a bad example of what to do. And they say like, well, Facebook's, you know, worth like whatever number of trillions of dollars or, or whatever, whatever they're worth at this point. Um, it, it might be difficult to appreciate the kind of trade off that that they're making, you know, for the on the commercial success side. Um, do, do you ever have those sorts of conversations? Do you ever have to kind of uh, talk somebody into the process of like, hey, you know, this is actually much more worth it for you to think about it. And, you know. Do, do you have to like rely on like, well, think about like society, like yeah. those sorts of things on top of, you know, uh, everything else? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no getting around the commercial success, right? It's it's obviously they've chosen great metrics to optimize for from a, a revenue maximization perspective. Uh, you know, that being said, I think the question really becomes what is the long-term value because if you look at even facebook versus google uh, from a revenue perspective on advertising facebook still trades at a multiple discount so if you want to make that argument you could say hey great they were very successful um at at growing and scaling but at scale 
because they had this very short-term revenue maximization view, they're right. trading at a discount. You see a massive amount of um, vitriol, essentially, both political and social, being hurled against them from both sides of the aisle. Uh, it's not a happy place to be, right? They sh- yeah. Rebranding the meta is not a, a, sh- a show of strength, right? It's, it's a show of retreat. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. Whereas, you know, I think the close analogs that I could pull that are great examples of how to be responsible with users' data, how to treat your users as your customers, even when you're in an advertising business, I think Google's done a great job of this. Uh, you know, even for their foibles, they at least have a culture where uh, they put control, privacy, transparency for their customers uh, more front and center. And you know, other social apps like Snapchat uh, have done really well, you know, relatively um, with a similar sort of mentality around kind of respecting the privacy, respecting the. Uh, agency of their users first and foremost, uh, or mm-hmm. making that a central tenant of how they operate. So I would say you can be successful in both modes. There's examples of people who have been widely successful with both modes, but you know one mode leads to a lot of heartache in the long term and leads to you trading at a discount in the long term, even if you are successful. Um, so that that is something to consider. And then there's obviously the social, uh, you know, the social pieces of it, which. You know, if I make the financial argument, I think you can also very easily make the social argument that this is just not a net benefit to society past a certain point. Yeah, which <laughs> I, I suppose is uh, you know uh, not that compelling to some people, but I, I've, my sense is that you know entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs on a whole uh, are on the whole are are much more open to um, the I don't know if it's speaks to the current state of the world but it seems like people are more open to the thought of like hey we'll just kind of just be a little bit mindful about what you're putting out into the world and you know are you every the, the joke especially like uh watching um you know any any sort of show about the silicon valley world um or silicon valley the show um is like you know making the world a better place through x um but it's like it almost feels so it feels a little bit like a joke but it does kind of feel like there's this aspect of like well you know do do think a little bit of like how you're making the world a better place, uh, even if it's like a, a hyper trivial way or like maybe just, you know, try not to make it worse if you can avoid it. Yeah, I think it's easy to see how you're making the world a better place. Right. I think what you also have to think about is how you could potentially be making the world a worse place um, mm. and, you know, looking at both sides of the coin instead of just looking at the shiny side that's facing you. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like a lot of this that we've been talking about here is sort of relevant to what you're doing. Maybe we should just take a, a kind of a step back and, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit of like what you're what you're currently working on, like what your current business is doing. And, you know, I, I imagine it, it all kind of ties in. Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm currently uh, working on this company called Archera. Uh, you can find us at A-R-C-H-E-R-A dot A-I. And this actually came out of my experience working at both Azure and AWS on the inside. And those are very different platforms from you know Facebook and Venmo, where I did a lot of my privacy research. Uh, but I saw very similar dynamics in that while you know, there's obviously much more alignment between the customers of these platforms and the platforms themselves. In the case of businesses renting computers from AWS and Azure um, to run their workloads, their applications, their uh, products in the cloud. Um, that being said, there's still sort of this walled garden mentality where these vendors are creating incredibly complex um, pricing schemes, incredibly complex management best practices uh, for the end users. And it creates tons of inefficiency and obviously leads to massive profitability for the the vendors. And when I was at AWS actually building and launching very expensive machine learning services as part of that startup that was acquired, um, I really saw sort of in full force the issues that this caused for some of our larger, largest customers and even for small startups who are just trying to get um, their foot in the door running machine learning workloads and trying to experiment with these things. Um, and you know, I think what was clear to me is that the vendors, AWS, Azure, Google, were really just not incentivized to build a better way um, to help engineering and finance teams really coordinate in terms of how they are purchasing capacity from the cloud and how are they are managing their costs over time, leading to, you know, tons of unpredictability, uh, hampered innovation time, and, you know, really a lot of frustration in the end customers uh, who didn't 
feel like they could go and migrate to a different walled garden or uh, choose something mm. else because of how locked in they were to the underlying cloud platform. Uh, so I looked at a number of those problems and you know how difficult the vendors were making it for customers. Um, and I started to think about how could we improve this? Because right now the process that most startups, most large companies, most growing companies go through when they're building on AWS or Azure and scaling their businesses is they have every single engineering team build a partnership with some centralized finance or operations team where the engineers have to go in and, you know, label and consolidate all of their workloads. And then the finance team goes and builds a report around waste. And then the engineering team has to go and terminate a lot of their unused stuff. And then right. the finance team has to go and analyze stuff now that it's at a, a baseline that makes sense for them and is not wasteful. And then you know, the engineers have to go right size and the finance team has to go forecast. And then the engineering team has to validate the forecast. So you have all this back and forth, tons of wasted time. And that's the status quo. That's the best practice. And all of this is happening essentially in spreadsheets. Um, so my thought was, well, how do how about we throw out the best practices that the vendors are telling their customers um, to sort of implement in their teams and create a system where you can actually automate a lot of this. So instead of four hours uh, a week of just going back and forth and back and forth between all of these different teams, uh, can you get this done in four hours a quarter where you can do the auto tagging and attribution, do your right sizing, do your governance, and then actually model out and navigate all the complexities and pricing given that uh, you know what you're going to be using, what your forecasted uh, capacity needs are to actually provide a a strategy that maximizes your your savings, your revenue, um, with respect to your business constraints. And that's a, a problem essentially and a workflow problem that we're trying to solve for customers where we can go from something that's reactive and manual to proactive, predictive, and automated uh, in terms of how they manage their cloud infrastructure. Yeah, that's awesome. And we, we've dealt with a lot of those issues because we've moved from a, a bare metal hosting environment into AWS. Uh, and we, this was, you know, um, I guess through the through the summer summer of last year. And we like basically ran into every single one of the issues that you just mentioned of, you know, well, yeah, first off to your point, it's like, it's just nearly impossible, even if you basically know like what your workload is, like how much you're going to get at, like how much you're going to send to and from AWS and how many servers you're going to use and those sorts of things. It's like nearly impossible to just know like, what's my bill going to be? Like yeah. even the, even the forecasting within AWS doesn't feel totally accurate. And you know, they should really have a clear, a clear grasp on that. Um, but then once the bill comes back and you say, this is too high, which you inevitably will, uh, which we did, you know, by like an order of magnitude, we're like, yeah, this is like, you know, like 10 X higher than what we want to pay. Yeah. Then it's like, there is no help from the AWS side unless you engage like human beings. And that to your point leads you down the road of like having meetings and talking to individuals and trying to figure things out. There's other than that, there's no like way that they show you of like, well, if you wanted to make this bill lower, here's what you could do. And here's what you can kind of expect. You know, if you put X amount of effort in on your side, you can see like why outcome on the other side. So exactly. you definitely have, have deeply experienced this issue and, and know like, yeah, it's such a, such a, a pain to, um, to move in the, in the direction that you want to from the finance side, from the operation side. Yeah. And I think something that that's unique that we're bringing into the market is obviously, you know, the automation piece but, and the predictive modeling piece of trying to make that prediction really high fidelity in a way that, you know, the very coarse tools from AWS or Azure don't allow you to do. Um, but then really using that predictability to help customers essentially share risk with us. So if we know that, you know, you have a workload that might live six months, we can actually give you a one year or three year commitment to, for that workload. And as soon as that commitment is not being used, we can take it right off your books. Uh, so we're actually using a lot of this automation and predictability that we've pioneered and put in the ground for our customers uh, to start to underwrite their bills um, and provide insurance for it across the, the longer term. So you know, I think there's there's a lot of ways in which partners uh, like Archera can help customers not just automate the the navigation of you know you know how do I stack rank all the changes that I can make to actually save money here? What are the commitments that actually make sense given my business forecasts? And how do I even build those business forecasts, right? Uh, but then how do I take that forecasted scenario and then de-risk it? 
how do I actually, um, you know, manage this without having to go and spend hours on the phone with the vendor trying to beg them to take my commitments back or change something on my bill because I screwed up doing it manually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it happens. <laughs> it happens all the time. It's kind of funny to, to hear you reflect, you know, from a third, you know, uh, from a third, third person, you know, of like, yeah, it's like what happens when it when it all goes wrong and it kind of sounds a little bit silly to be like well yeah just you know just get it right but it's like the 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 complexity and just getting it right and the likelihood that everything goes exactly to your plan like it's very difficult in our business to know like we we plan on a quarterly basis um and we we have sort of our overall one year plan but so much can change for us over the course of the year so uh, the last conversation that we were having with aws was they were trying to negotiate like a a four-year deal with us edp Uh, (laughs) yeah and so it's like i mean i would love to lock in those savings but like four years from now like i have no idea like are, you know, it's probably not going to be the case, but like our whole tech stack has changed in four years. And, you know, the way that we ingest data and process data, or maybe we're working with a partner, whatever the case is. So yeah, it's just um, a very, um, it's very interesting to hear you saying, you know, kind of going in on the risk side, because like, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to lock in a, a multi-year deal with AWS, but it's like, well, that's, that's like super risky from, from my perspective of like things will certainly be much different four years from now. They're dramatically different than they were just a year ago. So four years yeah. from now, there's like no way for me to tell like where we're going to be from a, from a tech, you know, from a platform standpoint. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of customers even don't just have this problem with Amazon when they come and say, Hey, let's do an enterprise deal with you. You know, they'll also be running on Azure. They'll be running on Google. So they have right. multiple vendors. They have to go and balance these, uh, you know, long-term yeah. commitments across and plan their infrastructure against. And the only tool in their tool belt until, you know, we came along really was, was spreadsheets. Uh, and right. I think that just creates a, a suboptimal outcome for everyone and even the vendors you know i was on the capacity planning side at um at azure and so difficult for them to understand what their customers are going to do in fact they're now doing things like trying to get their sales reps to build forecasts for their customers so just a problem across the industry but the default is the the vendors make money even when there's waste in the customer side so uh really the the key to attack is is the customer's uh predictability problems and then the downstream waste that can cause uh from a commitments perspective and from a usage perspective that's awesome um, so what's kind of the, the current state of your business? Like, what are you, what are you focused on? I don't know if you've already been thinking about, you know, 2022 plans, but I'm yeah. curious, like what, where's your focus currently and where are you, where are you looking to go, you know, this year or beyond if you're looking at a longer time horizon? Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you a, a sense of, of the business since 2019, uh, I spun out of Amazon and started it in 2019, uh, really focusing on AWS customers in the, the SMB and startup segment. And as we validated the product, um, had enough confidence and enough revenue to go raise a seed round at the beginning of 2020. Uh, from that seed round, we hired a team actually through the pandemic completely remotely, which was an interesting uh, sort of pivot because we were thinking originally yeah. to build this thing in person in Seattle. Um, but but we're actually very successful in um, hiring and, and maintaining culture in a remote team uh, and really got the product enterprise ready. So throughout 2021, we've been working with a number of larger enterprises, folks like Fortiv, which is a big Fortune 500 company up here in Seattle. Uh, and Garden Health, who recently IPO'd. Uh, so a lot of these larger, much more intensive users of cloud to build a, a really hardened enterprise solution that can not just do the forecasting of, hey, should I you know, move this IaaS workload to Kubernetes and what's the cost benefit of this, of, but how do I balance between multiple vendors, multiple providers, um, and how do I build a strategy so that multiple teams can actually uh, group commitments together and, and have these optimal sort of configurations all running on one cloud bill. And then as we move into 2022, 
we have a roadmap to get Azure in GA out the door for enterprise customers as well as Google. And we actually just released Kubernetes support um, at the end of last year. So tons of product work on the roadmap. And in tandem with that, we actually just raised a Series A at the end of 2021. So my focus has largely been on on hiring and, and keeping the team together and aligned as we grow and new people are constantly coming in. Uh, so really right now, I think as we validated our enterprise sales motion, um, we're hiring more folks on the go-to-market side and trying to put that team together. And that's a big focus of mine uh, for 2022 as we go into, uh, I think, uh, the post-product market fit phase where you're really trying to grow and uh, pour more fire, uh, more more gas on the fire, as it were, um, to to accelerate the business. Yeah, that's awesome. What what have you learned and what what have you found works well for for hiring remotely and, and managing team culture with everybody being spread out everywhere? Yeah, well, I had some friends who actually worked in remote first companies before the pandemic. And I think um, what's really interesting is the pandemic has actually been a terrible representation of what remote work could be. You know, you don't have cafes or co-working spaces. You don't really have offsites. In fact, with Omicron, we are delaying our our offsite. Um, But I think there's, you know, some some things you can do kind of purely virtually from making sure there's open sessions uh, for folks to kind of get together and share, uh, making sure there's regular sort of informal touch points between people. So we use Donut to do that in our Slack where you can just connect random people in the team, make sure uh, folks are building a casual rapport, uh, not just professional rapport with everyone. I think there's simple stuff even that we've tried that's been successful, like cutting meetings on certain days so people aren't just back-to-back Zoom, cutting internal meetings, mm-hmm. I should say, um, and additionally starting meetings uh, you know, five minutes late generally to ensure that folks have just some time to, to chit-chat on Zoom before we get into things. Uh, I think there's, there's some little hacks like that, but really nothing has replaced the in-person um, sort of work. So when we get together for conferences or when we fly people up here to Seattle, uh, to do in-person brainstorming sessions. Those are still the best ways to to connect and get together. And, you know, I think making sure that when we had that lull over the summer, we had as many happy hours as possible. Um, right. You know, that, that was important to, to keeping the team sort of, from a social perspective, kind of bonded. You know, on the recruiting side, I think it's also very difficult to make that transition. Uh, but once you do, you, you have a process set. So, you know, you have the back-to-back Zoom calls with the uh, candidates. You have to make sure that, you're you're touching them with phone calls, with um, emails as frequently as you can, uh, and trying to make it as personal as you can. So this is why I'm so um, dialed in on the recruiting side right now. It's it's very much a tough market to get talent, but it's also one where if you're a founder of a small company and you have the bandwidth to go and get that personal touch out there, I found it's very, very successful in getting people motivated and getting people to feel like, you know, they're going to have a high degree of support here versus the other offers that they might be looking at. Um, And then lastly, I think it's great for a small company to have that tight rapport from the top down with all of the employees. How do you, I mean, it sounds like you have a real, a real focus on um, making sure that uh, you have that kind of personal touch. I, I do. I it, it totally resonates with me of like in a remote work environment. It's like pretty trivial to have professional communications keep running. Like email obviously still works. Uh, people use Slack. You have Zoom calls. You have the calendar. All these things you know can really make sure that uh, whatever you know project management tools or whatever else you're using, we have all these sort of systems that through you know, through remote and async can make sure that the work keeps moving and, you know, uh, things keep getting built and customers are helped and so on and so forth. But the really challenging thing is like all those like little personal touches or kind of like to what you said of like the non-professional side. Uh, it sounds like that's a really big uh, priority for you. And even what I'm hearing is that you even kind of extend that out through the through the hiring funnel too of like, you know, it's simple to like manage a, a, a resume moving through some applicant tracking system, but it's a whole, not, uh, it's a completely different thing to, um, you know, say like, okay, well, you know, the CEO is going to send you a message of like, oh, like I, whatever, something personalized, something um, that, you know, actually took a moment of, of your time to, to send out there. And it feels like that really does make a, a big difference to um, not recreate 
the in-person and you know it's not it's not the same thing but it is an important thing that it does feel like we sort of lost track of yeah i think the human touch basically gets lost over zoom and over kind of a purely remote uh workspace so the more you can you know i think it's not it's not replacing it in any way but the more you can do to supplement that i think yeah. uh the more normal it feels uh hopefully the more normal it, more normal it feels for employees as well yeah that's awesome well hey th- this has been this has been really awesome um i, I like to, to try to close it out i know it's a little bit of putting you on the spot but you know any advice um for for people that are getting started i know you have a lot of uh already talked about a lot of things that are really uh, specifically valuable for especially if you're thinking about building something new to consider those, um, you know, the, the, the downsides, the consequences of your actions. Um, and also, you know, if you're, you know, looking at servers and things like that, you know, there's a bunch of downside there, but do you have any kind of piece of advice when, when early stage entrepreneurs or people who are thinking about getting into it come to you any, any kind of go-tos that you have that we can sort of end on to yeah. say like, Hey, here's, here's my, here's my one, you know, <laughs> my one golden nugget to, to leave you on. Yeah. I mean, I think with, with early stage entrepreneurship and, you know, I credit my time at Amazon for really solidifying this in my mind as a formal process, but always working backwards from your end user and your customer. Um, and I think making sure that what you are building how you're thinking about building it is aligned with their best interests and you're always working backwards from them not working backwards from what competitors are doing or revenue mm-hmm. maximization even but working backwards from the customer that is always i think a you know across all the projects i've done that's always been a winning strategy and that's always been something that's worth taking the time to do and kind of in doing that i think you end up addressing a lot of the problems that we talked about if you're working backwards from the end user say of messenger you wouldn't have probably put in that location sharing default feature. Um, right. So things like that, I think, are are really important to keep front and center as you build, as you ideate, as you plan uh, your entrepreneurial journey. And I think the hardest thing is actually figuring out who your customer is a lot of the time. Um, yeah. And, you know, thinking really deeply about that up front, I think will pay a lot of dividends. And I've seen my career has paid a lot of dividends down the road. Awesome. Well, all right. I think that's a, that's a fantastic note to end on. Thanks again for, for making the time. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you, Brian. And uh, just really quick, uh, in case folks want to find me online, you can find me at A-R-A-N-K-H-A-N-N-A on Twitter. And if you're interested in any uh, sort of navigation of the complexities of cloud pricing, uh, you can just kick up a free trial on A-R-C-H-E-R-A, archera.ai. Uh, and really great to chat with you, Brian, and excited to link up again soon. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. That was our conversation with Arun Khanna, the founder and CEO of Archera. If you need a better way to manage and de-risk your cloud resources, you know where to go, archera.ai. That's A-R-C-H-E-R-A dot A-I. In fact, Archera is offering a free demo for Founder Chats listeners. To redeem your offer, head to the show notes and follow the link. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.